and welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. This time we're uh, looking at Spycraft and some of our favourite films in the genre of understated spy movie. I am Drew Dundell, with me this evening, Craig Eastman. <laughs> well, how did do? And Mr. Scott Morris. Hello. All I can think about now is what you were doing before we started. What's that, pouring myself a gin? That's it, that's, that, that's exactly what I mean, Craig, yes. Yes. Well, we could talk about the fact that you're um, getting your will set up to leave everything in event of your death to your firstborn son. My cat. Your cat, yes. Yes, I am. Clive will be in charge of my estate. Clive the executor. What What is your tipple of choice tonight, Drew? It is Tiger Beer. And, wonder, and Scott? The wonderfully generic premium Belgian lager from... <laughs> The finest, la- <laughs> for a petrol it's station. the finest lager you can get from a, a convenience store attached to a petrol station in deepest, darkest windows, So Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think as we were saying before, any port in a storm, Scott. <laughs> I myself am on some nice gin, some nice Scottish gin and tonic. Scottish gin just sounds strange because I associate gin so much with London more than anywhere else. Well, the Scottish gin scene is a big thing now, apparently. I was reading as early as uh, 10 o'clock this morning, to be specific. I can't remember where, but I was reading an article all about Scotland's resurgent gin scene. As long as I was reading and not drinking at 10 o'clock this morning. <laughs> well, if I, to be honest with you, it went for the fact I was waiting on my wife going into labour, then I would be drinking at 10 o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I have no qualms with that. I had that very conversation with her previously. I think if you drink at that time in the morning, but then stop again, you're probably fine. <laughs> no, you keep going. <laughs> double down, double down. Don't be out us through. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right then, so... I think that um, it's erroneous, but if you say spy movie to someone, there's a good chance what they'll think of, first of all, is James Bond. Now, because if you apply any thought to it, Bond films are nothing to do with spying at all because everybody in the world seems to know who he is. So he's the world's worst secret agent, and they're really. <laughs> he's, just films. A, he's just an agent. Mm. Yes. Uh, but um, it's what people would think of it. We want to look very much at the other side of this, the, the more understated. Authentic. Uh, Authentic is a, is a reasonable word. I mean, to a degree, at least. We've got to remember yeah. these are uh, films, and I'm not sure the Epicurus Files uh, projection room is particularly authentic. But <laughs> no, but there's certainly some of these films that we want to talk about that are probably as close as we've seen on uh, celluloid to the the actual craft of spying and yes, es- espionage and counter-espionage. So. Yeah, the actual... So it's the, it's the spy craft, the trade craft, that's quite often in these films. Uh, and as a result, due to the, the nature of that spycraft, they're very often deliberately paced. They burn quite slowly and very different from something like a James Bond film or, you know, Triple X, mm. that other great You don't often see Daniel Craig or Ice Cube doing any admin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the remarkable, remarkably little amount of paperwork um, in those uh, in those films. The thing about that is, it, it sounds and it, to some people, sure, it kind of sounds like it may be a bit dull. But actually, I do, and I suspect both of you do, to find the the slow burning spycraft film considerably more satisfying. 
Yeah, more more satisfying in a number of ways, and I think actually the 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 more realistic takes, you know, to varying degrees that we'll talk about tonight on uh, Spycraft for me, uh, the the most important thing and the most enjoyable aspect of them is because they're so they tend to be far more personal, uh, and they're far less likely to be based around sort of contrivances such as world domination <laughs> and secret layers. I think the, I think the the stakes become very personal, and and it's much easier to become involved and and feel the pressure. Uh, of the environment and the task at hand and although it might not always be the case that we're talking about you know world domination or the the fate of the fate of western civilization it, it does tend to feel more um more thrilling for want of a better word yeah i think it's a lot more or a lot easier to get emotionally invested in something when the stakes are more relatable yes it's something i think maybe i mentioned in when we did our bond podcast but when the stakes are you know world sized it's too big um you can't really care about it the same way no and you can't you at that point the minute that the stakes become that high at no point then are you in any doubt as to what yeah. the outcome is going to be of course yes. the, of course the day is going to be saved whereas when you're dealing with some sort of mole hunt operation within a secret service then really when you go into that film unless you've you know you've read the source novel or you're aware beforehand then the stakes being that much smaller in, a, in an immediate sense means that you're far more likely to experience tension and, and be uncertain uh, assuming that the filmmakers play their cards right mm-hmm. which they which they do in a great number of the cases we'll talk about tonight but you are much less likely to be certain of the outcome yeah absolutely you're spot on it's world domination at stake well you know it it's going to be resolved and not it'd be a brave film and an unusual film that you know actually had the world being dominated at the end with the hero having failed but, yes, but when it's a smaller scale that yeah you do not you don't necessarily know which way it's going to go yes, there, there is a possibility it could fail absolutely you could finger yeah. the wrong guy so to speak yeah well, and, we've all been there <laughs> <laughs> but enough of our teenagers or, or, is that, or is that just me oh dear never live it okay. down um so to that end in particular what we're going to start talking about is film just a few years ago one of one that we are all very very fond of perhaps one of the best ensemble casts we've ever seen and that's the wonderful tinker taylor soldier spy Ooh, my film of the year from 2011 also mine Good taste, Drew. Thank you. So, Tink- Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, then, but we'll talk a lot about um, John Lacari in this podcast because his uh, novels have arguably been the most successful in their translation, broadly speaking, in their translation to the big screen across the years, which they have been subject to on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this most recent Tinker Taylor adaptation, as you say, I think the first uh, certainly cinematic or, or large TV uh, adaptation since the Alec Guinness starring adaptation of the 1970s that the BBC did, which is widely regarded as as one of the best pieces of television that the BBC have produced even to this day. So to give you the short version of <laughs> to give you the short version of the plot, I suppose in summation, it's 1973. Uh, there's an operation in Budapest conducted by British intelligence to flush out a presumed Soviet mole. Uh, that operation goes terribly wrong, forcing the retirement of the agency's head control played by John Hurt, and also his right man, uh, sorry, also his right-hand man, George Smiley, who's played by Gary Oldman. Control dies shortly afterwards, but not before having expressed his distrust in a clique of circus stalwarts who look likely to replace his regime, and amongst whom he suspects is the mole. So Smiley is tasked by Oliver Lakin, the civil servant with oversight of the circus, to conduct a, an operation covertly to flush out the mole, and what follows 
is best described as a tightly woven narrative of trusts and mistrusts as spies and agents of counter-espionage on both sides of the Cold War uh, try seek ultimately, I suppose, to wrestle control of, of Britain's intelligence operations. And I would... I think one of the strengths of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies, I, I read the novel some time ago and I had seen the TV adaptation a while back. Uh, I lose track of when now, m- many years ago now. And I kind of felt I was familiar enough with the source material. And then I went to watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in the cinema, was completely blown away by it. Alfredson's um, direction is absolutely sublime. And I came out of the cinema thinking to myself, wow, there's so much new material there that really built upon the source. And it's one of those great adaptations where actually the material has been expanded in all the right ways and then I suppose six months to a year later I was driving around in the car and I was listening to the audiobook and lo and behold actually I've completely misremembered it and it turns out that it is fantastically close to the source material but somehow that script and Alfredson's uh, it was was it Thomas Alfredson right yes. yes yes Thomas Alfredson's direction convinced me that I hadn't really seen that material before <laughs> and that was that was the most surprising thing about it for me and on I can't really praise it highly enough I know um a lot of people complain that the the plot is um, perhaps too labyrinthine and it is it is quite a twisty turny uh, narrative and it's not helped by the fact that Alfredson also uses a flashback device um, you know that, that tried and tested method of keeping people bang up to speed with complex plots um, so that does obfuscate things uh, slightly and even initially uh, on my first watch at the cinema I, f- I found it slightly difficult to keep track of even having read the source material but really, on repeat viewings, this is one of those films that just keeps dishing out the rewards, mm. and I don't think I've grown tired of watching it yet. And I must be on about my seventh or eighth watch now, easily. Okay. I think what's quite successful about it too, and it is, it's quite—I don't labyrinthine's quite the word, but it's certainly quite dense. Mm. And into that two and a half hour film, something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. But managed to get almost everything that's in the six hours or so of the TV adaptation. Yeah, and it doesn't feel rushed. No, it doesn't. It's, it does feel still feel slow and fairly leisurely paced. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be able deliberately pace is better because it takes the time it needs. Yeah, um, but the, yeah, it doesn't feel rushed. It still manages to get most of that information in there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot. Of story. There, there's a lot of people just being allowed to stand around and act just by looking at other people and moments of silence as well, where actually it feels probably as if nothing's going on, but actually everything in the world is going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's perhaps the best film we've seen at managing to establish relationships and even actions between people without actually having any yeah. words at all. It's just looking at people, just meaningful glances. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, it's a good, what, 10, 15 minutes before the main character even speaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gary Oldman, who, who can be so, so guilty of chewing the scenery um, and there's so many films he's in yeah i mean sometimes entertainingly so like the fifth element or something but can just overact so much I've, for I, hear his, so I hear guilty. his sep blatter is off the hook <laughs> uh, for somebody that is can be so guilty of being really hammy really overacting for him to give such a stunning understated performance where he doesn't even speak yeah. for 10 or 15 minutes in the film and just everything just by managing to look like 
the saddest, most world-weary person you've ever seen. And that conveys so much about the character without a single word coming out of his mouth. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a career-best performance from him, isn't it? And pro- oh, absolutely. Probably, this, probably the same for all of the leads. Even the guys like uh, supporting actors like Mark Strong, who oh, is Mark. incredible in this, but he's not got a huge role, but it's such a pivotal and important one that you know it really is quite remarkable to see. Same with, same with John Hurt, uh, same with uh, guys like Colin Firth. Tremendous roles. Toby Jones mm-hmm. as well. Toby Jones must get all of about six lines in this movie. Yeah. And Kieran Hines, I think, maybe even two. Yeah, Kieran Hines doesn't have a lot to do. So I don't think Kieran no. Hines comes out as strong, certainly for lack of stuff to do. But certainly Toby mm. Jones, Colin Firth too, and yeah, particularly Mark Strong, who I think we're all big fans of. Yeah. Um, and his wigs. I wonder if there's like a there's got to be a there's got to be like a cut of this movie that's twice the length because when you look at those actors like Toby Jones and Kieran, people like Kieran Hines who are f- five words in the whole film maybe Kieran Hines says yeah and I think to myself what sorry what did he just not have anything else on that weekend but I think probably for some of these guys the chance the chance to work with that cast in a, in an ensemble is probably a great attraction yeah, it, and it is an incredible ensemble cast. And yeah, there are, there are people in there too. Um, and there are so many people and you tend to forget them. It's like you watch against, oh yeah, Tom oh, yeah, Hardy's yeah. in this, isn't he? Um, Tom, Tom Hardy's perhaps the least convincing for me. He feels a little bit out of his depth um, because the rest of this cast are just on, you know, A-plus form. Even as the weakest link, he's still very good in it. Yeah, then you have people like Benedict Cumberbatch, who's generally the very least dependable. He's really good in this, Peter Gwillem. But then you have people who, but I know I've said, for years, people talk about her being a really good actor. Kathy Burke in this mm-hmm. as Connie, she's fantastic. She was a revelation to me in this film. Talking about her boys, yeah. Well, I mean, it's got a very good performance from Roger Lloyd Pack, who's Trigger from Trigger. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and exactly. of all things. Yeah, a tremendous yeah, performance. Most bizarre. I think it's interesting, Scott, when you talk about how much is is dealt uh, just in terms of looks between characters, uh, you know, emoting without actually saying anything. The final ten minutes of this film. Yes which on on paper sounds bizarre the final 10 minutes of this film uh, of this film sorry um are edited to uh, the sounds of a live TV performance of La Mer by Julio Iglesias in a, in a disco style which sounds it sounds ridiculous. It sounds actually, ridiculous and completely that. at odds with the source material. But believe me when I say it works. And that last ten minutes of film contains so many amazing glances between characters, off kilter looks. So much is said without a single word being spoken in that. I don't think a single word is spoken in that last ten minutes. Actually, um, so much is said between characters just by looks between between Mark Strong and what's his chops. Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Colin Firth, yeah. Um, between what's his chops and what's his chops. <laughs> between Gwillem and Smiley, um, there's a really amazing look as well. And, oh, and the visual cues as well, the visual cues and metaphors. And that last 10 minutes, I would have been happy for that last 10 minutes to have been stretched out for two hours. And I would have felt like I'd had my money's worth. So much is packed into that. It's one of the most amazing uh, conclusions to a movie that I've seen, both in terms of the edit and just the, the, the pace and the style and the content of it. I love it. I mean, not even spoken yeah. about the way the film looks, which is gorgeous and packed with this, yeah. uh, this lovely kind of period detail as well, which uh, really makes it stand out yeah, from it, the crowd without looking like it's some sort of pastiche. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it feels like, I mean, the film stuff obviously would have been better now, but it feels like it could have been shot then. The colours, or rather the lack thereof, it just seems spot on for the period. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of attention to detail has been paid to the to the overall production of it, and it's probably it's one of those things where actually you don't 
to its credit, you don't really notice it all that much as you're watching it. You just kind of immediately accept it, and that, and then you know it's done its job. Mm-hmm. You're completely, you're completely convinced. Right? Okay, yeah, I'm in 1974. No yeah, one that's transparent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No one walks past wearing like a, you know a, a, a digital watch or something. <laughs> you know, something like that. Although I've not checked, I've not checked the goofs in the IMDb trivia. Um, I'm sure people have, have probably picked fault here and there, like, oh, the, the the logo on the Coke can is actually from 1977, uh, not 1973-74. Uh, but it's so authentic that really without paying any attention to it, you find yourself absolutely involved and um, and and immersed in, in this world. And when a film does that without you really noticing, I think it's testament to the, the attention to detail that's gone into production. Probably a huge amount of work and money has been spent on that authenticity to make sure that you don't really pay attention to it. Mm. And it's probably worth mentioning, of course, that Lakari himself uh, is an ex-intelligence agent. And this is yes. not autobiographer, autobiographical, but there there is some set drawing from his personal experience and the way his uh, cover was blown oh, by yes. people. So that does filter through into this work in particular, which I think is what yeah. makes it kind of raw. And uh, yeah, it, it just gives it such an edge. And it's a really great story the, the way that you can unravel this and you really are kept guessing first time i'd uh, heard this i think i heard the audiobook first but yeah you, you really couldn't tell who it's going to be no. uh, until until the big reveal at the end that, that really does keep you guessing so yeah it's a tremendous watch i think it's lacari's most well-known novel i think it's probably safe to say uh you know for for the reason that it's it's probably his best written, certainly of the ones that I've read through, it's the best written and that sort of semi-autobiographical aspect of parts of it make it so very authentic mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. There's, there's no part of this film that you would watch and think, well, no, that's just patently ridiculous. It is all very much believable and I, I can absolutely believe that this is how these kinds of things played out. Yeah. Whether or not they still do now, I doubt very much. But at the time, I imagine this is highly authentic and I have no reason to doubt Lacari's supposition there. Yeah, so at the same time, being his most successful novel, also, it must be a fairly, and especially given that amazing TV adaptation, it must be a pretty daunting task for a director to take this on board. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it helps that the director isn't like British, certainly not an English speaker, mm-hmm. um, as a native, that doesn't have quite that... He's not coming in with um, any baggage. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, I think but, probably it does. <clears throat> it's so successful. And even just rather than the success of the film, one of the reasons I like this so much, is, this doesn't necessarily tie with anything we've said, but I just wanted to mention is uh, why I like these films so much. I love the, the fact that so much of this sort of film works with the characters just doing hard work. It's never magical stuff they're doing. It's never you're putting something into an evidence agitator or <laughs> using a, a magical enhancing computer image thing. Yeah, It's one of the reasons I love The Day of the Jackal so much too. Where it's more just the characters just diligent, hardworking and intelligent rather than, you know, magical geniuses who happen to find exactly the right thing at the right yeah. time. It's about man hours being expended on tedious stuff. Mm. Yeah, but that's it's so much more satisfying that uh, regard too because then there's more danger that way for the characters because you realise they could miss it or something could go wrong and it's more just satis- more satisfying to see that come together. Definitely. Shall we talk about another Lacari then? Because I have found a new film to love and it's 51 years young this year, I believe. <laughs> yeah, the, the first Lacar, 
adaptation, I believe it was, mm. certainly from Lies. Um, yeah, and that film would be uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the 1965 adaptation uh, in which... Richard Burton plays Alec Lemus, the handler of Britain's undercover agents in Berlin at the height of the Cold War. Lemus has overseen a disastrous period for British agents in the city due to counter-operations by his German counterpart Munt, and when the last of his charges is killed by crossing the divide of the Berlin Wall on his way to debriefing, the hard-drinking chief is faced with a choice. Either walk away from his life in espionage or undertake one last very dangerous mission. Uh, initially, it would seem that Lemus, and it's quite actually quite disorientingly, it initially seems that Lemus has chosen the former. Uh, but shortly we come to realise that he has in fact taken the one last job option, that being to convince the German agency that he has in fact decided to defect and is now in fear of execution by his own side. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is one of those films that I, uh, I keep hearing people talk about and it's perpetually popping up in you know, recommendation lists and for some reason, despite the fact it's in a genre that I really love, it's, a, it's kind of a touchstone picture that's highly regarded in this genre that I love. For some reason I've never come round to watching it and it was only about was it about a week ago that I watched this in preparation for the podcast and man alive what a film yeah I mean I I'd read the book or well, the audio book uh, read to me at that point uh, some time <laughs> ago and uh, I liked it a lot and then I think I watched this was at the end of one of the TV adaptations and that didn't really grab me very much so I think that put me off uh, further investigation of the the film but that was a stupid idea, as it turns out, because Spy Who Came In For Cold's amazing. Um, yeah. All of the car ad- adaptations we're going to talk about here are brilliant. I don't know yet if this is better than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I think it actually might be, just because Richard Burton's performance is incredible, and also it's easily the most cynical and uh, hard-edged of it. Oh, yes. Uh, this is the sort of real nasty side of uh, the espionage game that's uh, certainly towards the end, you think, is... Perfectly yeah. believable and also really quite soul destroying at the end of the day. Well, as mm. as as some of the characters' motivations are in uh, Tinker Sailor, Soldier Spy, or any number of these films tonight, so so many of its characters' emotions and experiences are predicated on the fact they have us they have a sneaking suspicion that they're obviously partaking in very dangerous work, but. They're obviously in danger from the other side, but they all almost always have a sneaking suspicion that they might they might be viewed as entirely expendable by their own side. And this is one of those films where that turns out to be the case for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Sorry, spoiler spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, in a lot of cases in this movie, that that sneaking suspicion turns out to be vindicated. It's also got one of the more incredibly multi layered plots that is going on in the sort of intrigue world. It's all very bluff and double bluff, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't feel as though it's ludicrous. It feels like this is actually something that could very believably have happened. Yeah, I think I think probably to the sorry Scott, probably to the same extent as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it probably goes that deep into um, into like you say plot and counterplot and and subterfuge and, and double dealing. But it it to me it didn't feel as complex as Tinker Tailor watching it. It didn't feel quite as dense. It was easier to digest, which I think is in its which strength. I think is unusual because I, I think it is actually far more complicated because at heart Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is there is a mole. We need to find a mole where this mm. is, in a way, we need to protect them all by doing some seriously weird things. And uh, the kind of multi-layered plot that goes on to do that really does kind of... It, it should be ridiculous, but somehow it isn't. It's all very believable, and uh, even though it's you know, taking place at a very high level, it all works. And uh, it's, uh, it's tr- quite an achievement, I think, to make that have that believability filter through. And it's really just driven through, I think, mainly by Richard Burton, who is someone who I've not really seen a lot of to my 
discredit for someone who does a film podcast, yeah. but in this film, at least, he is amazing. I've seen a number of films that Richard Burton has happened to be in. I've never watched a movie because Richard Burton was in it. He's never been one of my favourite actors, as well regarded as he is, but yeah, I'm kind of a Richard Burton fan after this mm. now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna. the upshot of this is that I'm going to go back and watch more Richard Burton movies, even ones that I've seen before and maybe dis- dismissed them out of hand, uh, because this, for me, really was the film where I'm like, wow, I get it. Richard Burton really could act. Yeah, I don't know how much of it is leaning into his uh, character. I mean, this is obviously a really cynical drunk that he's playing. I don't know if that is any oh. reflection on his character <laughs> at all. But Quite autobiographical, some of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, you know. Undoubtedly uh, so, but also highlights the fact there's a reason why this, you know, Hollywood didn't come knocking on this, this drunk Welsh bloke's door <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth Taylor saw something in him. What's weird about this film for me, though, is that Richard Burton's fantastic in it, right? The story... It's really good, especially the ending too, because you're you're completely blindsided by that. Yeah. You're not expecting that at all. Mm-hmm. I don't like this film, and I cannot work out why. Really, really, yeah, I really, really don't like it. I'm bored by it, quite frankly. Um, and that was when the first time I watched it a few years ago. I felt bored. I watched it again a couple of days ago, and I think I'm going to like this. And I was like, nope, it still bored me. And I can't work out why, because everything about it. I should like. I love slow burning stuff like that. I like John Le Carre's work. I think Richard Burton's excellent, and I like the story. Mm-hmm. I just cannot get on with this film, and I don't know why. That's all right. There's, you don't need to justify that. Sometimes you just don't click with something. Um, yeah, no, no, but it's just strange because I like the other Le Carre stuff so much, and there are similarities in the structure, the pacing. So the reason, the the point at which I knew I was going to love this movie is when Richard Burton first meets uh, Claire Bloom's character, Nan Perry in what has to be the world's most specific reference library. (laughs) It's about, this reference library is about the size of the room that I'm sitting in now. It has maybe three shelves. And I think, what is it he requests? He's he's looking to file a book and it's like, oh yes, metamorphosis, but specifically under lycanthropy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like right, but it has I'm a on board. Section. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, and I'm like, okay, it's got it's got Richard Burton hammering the scotch, um, and it's got this, it's got this uber specific reference library. <laughs> I'm in. Whatever you've got to show me, I'm I'm by. I'm going all in. Here we go. I'm putting my faith in you, and I I was I was rewarded richly. <laughs> oh dear, I think um, I kind of. I can see I can see why actually because there was a point in the first maybe 10 15 minutes where I wasn't I was kind of sitting in the fence a little bit Drew and mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the tipping point was but at some point I kind of found myself engrossed and then bang the credits were rolling and I thought Jesus Christ where did the last 90 minutes go but I can kind of see that if you weren't fully engaged by that point then I get it um but I, oh, I hope you go back and watch it again I've already watched it twice and didn't like it either time so right. I don't know I might but um, and see, like, sort of rationally, everything about it I should like, but emotionally it never invested me. Mm. Uh, but this, that, a sucker, ex- that sucker punch at the end, though, mm. um, like without spoiling anything uh, for a 51-year-old film, if you haven't seen it, if you don't want, I mean, skip ahead a couple of minutes if, if you don't want anything spoiled for you. But that point at the end at which um, Nan Perry uh, is shot trying to go over the wall and Richard Burton has the opportunity to make it over and he clearly just decides... To hell with this! What have I got anyway? That's mm-hmm. every, everything I'd invested myself in, and any hope I had of a normal life after this just slumped down on the other side of this wall, dead. I'm going with her. Yeah. Uh, that really took me unawares because, you, as you said, Scott, that cynicism that runs through a lot of these films and the expendability of people, mm-hmm. you always assume that that cynicism is going to extend to 
the main character. And I think it's perhaps the only time in a film, whether it's been of this genre, whether it's been an adaptation of a novel or not, that I've seen that main character faced with that decision. And I automatically assumed he would just say, well, look, that's what happens. That's the game we're in. And rather than proceed with cynicism and just brush it off, as we've seen a million times in Bond movies, uh, you know, we've been conditioned just to accept that the, the good guys, if he is going to feel bad about it at all, is just kind of man up and get on with it. For this guy to decide, what is their past this anyway? I can't be bothered anymore. And just allow himself yeah. to be shot yeah. was really was really a sucker punch for me. I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, that had been exactly what I was going to talk about too and it's what Scott mentioned earlier too about sort of you not really knowing what's coming in this sort of film again with the stakes being lower too mm-hmm. that you can be completely blindsided by something like this that you, you're you not expecting a, the hero to do anything like this at all or yeah. for for that to have happened that the whole thing was a setup and the woman was expendable and they were always expecting her to die but yeah. he never knew that and his he'd sort of he'd stopped being this great spy um, and not paid attention to stuff like that that he should have known and it's just it's it's so well crafted it's a good story and it's kind of disappointed that I don't like it more but (laughs) Mm. well the the thing of it is as well I think you kind of should see it coming because when he's afforded the opportunity to undertake this mission at the start by his by his own boss he makes it very clear that look you know you can do this if you want I'm essentially going to be using you as a means to an end Mm-hmm. And Lemus undertakes that. So really the, the signs are kind of there, but you still, I guess it, whether it's conditioning or, you know, whatever it is, you still don't expect that. It's a movie. Of course you don't expect, you know, the hero to make such a, a terrible, well, not a terrible decision. Clearly it was the right decision for him <laughs> at the time. Um, you know, to make such a, a counterintuitive decision. Uh, it really was, I'm surprised that a, a movie this old had the power to do that. It was something I hadn't seen before. Right then, so we're going to move on to one more John le Carre film. Another one that very successfully committed to screen, translated to screen. And this one much more recently though. Well, I say much more recently than Spy who came from the cold, obviously not that much more recent than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The Most Wanted Man stars the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. He plays Gunter Backman, who's the head of a German counter-terrorism agency, although it's not exactly legal who's interested in getting information about Islamic terror groups and trying to find a way into them. So he's rather interested when in Hamburg arrives the son of a Chechen immigrant who's the son of a Russian soldier who has a claim to pretty substantial ill-gotten inheritance. Uh, That gives Bachman the opportunity to expose a major financier of terrorism, but he has to contend with the interagency politics and bureaucracy and backstabbing that goes on in the counter-terrorism world. Yeah, so first of all, I mention again what I said there about the casting. There's a couple of odd castings. Philip Seymour Hoffman's fantastic, but why he is cast as a German, why Rachel McAdams is cast as a German, I don't know. Well, clearly Um, there aren't really any good actors in Germany, you know, who who could have capably capably carried out this role. And, you know, if nothing else in the last 15, 20 years of of, uh, European cinema, we've learned that there's not a single actor in Germany Who's who's capable of a, of a <laughs> of a convincing portrayal such as this? Yeah, but again, this is it's low key, it's slow burn. It's a case of it being like the sort of deliberate investigation again, and this time what's thrown in, which not so much in evidence other films, is there's the politics that I mentioned. Mm. There's there's professional rivalry, professional jealousy, 
authors, um, people looking for funding, that sort of thing. All that sounds like it could be really dull, but it's actually really fascinating well, in this film. To me, uh, and the first I had a chance to watch this was the other night. It's a film I've been, um, uh, sorry, last night. It's a film I've been meaning to catch up with for a while. And for me, the biggest danger in this film, the biggest threat comes from the interdepartmental rivalry because... The context of this is the most important thing. Obviously, these operations are taking place in Hamburg in the sort of the present day, and Hamburg is the city which spawned the 9-11 conspirators. So you have this action taking place in a city whose authorities are very much aware of the fact that they, you know, they are a hotbed of this kind of activity and mm-hmm. that they are determined for the same thing not to happen again. But that, you know, that the 9-11 conspirators were able to operate within the city with largely, you know, and plot with impunity largely because of the distraction caused by interdepartmental rivalries. And history is repeating itself. And so for me, the biggest sense of danger came not from this is he, isn't he question of the motivations of the immigrant character, but actually, are the Germans going to f*** this up again amongst themselves was, was the biggest source of tension for me. And I felt... Oh, we've got to add in the fact that the Americans do a fair good job of trying to f*** it up for them also. Yes, absolutely. This is the problem is that obviously the the Americans take an interest as well. And when they feel that Bachman's investigations, he's quite happy to sort of things, let things play out slowly and make the judgment call on when to make a move. He wants to see how much information he can gather, but that his, you know, his superiors within other organisations and pressure from the Americans to just swoop in and detain this guy regardless of what the outcome of the investigation may be. That's where the source of tension comes from, not necessarily whether we're, we're going to witness some sort of terrorist atrocity uh, being facilitated. And that was, to me, that was the film's strong card. But there, there were one or two things that bothered me about it. But sorry, carry on, Drew. No, it's okay. You carry on if you have something more to say. Just... No, I think I really enjoyed this. But of the three Lacari adaptations that we're going to we're going to look at, this was oddly this was the least involving for me. I don't know whether it's just that the sort of the contemporary spy game isn't as appealing to me, and if anything, it's even more office based than it would appear that the the spy game of the the seventies was. But I didn't feel that the spectre of the the problems being caused by the interdepartmental thing is sort of ever ever present in this movie. But I didn't perhaps feel as much tension as I should have done it wasn't as sufficient an agitator as i would have liked because fairly early on in the film i'd convinced myself that the uh, the the son of the russian soldier probably was going to be relatively benign and we spoke earlier about this the stakes and how this kind of film operates on a, a lower level of stake and that's often more satisfying but although this film i suppose the stakes are pitched somewhere in between because there is the impression that perhaps you know the next big terrorist atrocity might hang on this investigation um Mm -hmm. at the same time as a as kind of a small clandestine operation it's very procedural but i don't know whether it's just that i just don't know whether it was an adopting or or sort of being subject to that middle ground kind of made it less satisfying at either end of the spectrum well, that's Does that make sense? What appealed to me about it because the, the the whole play in this film is not, as you say, it's not really the Chechen immigrants' uh, involvement in it. It's the way that they could use him as as a Gunter's character puts it. Mm-hmm. He's using a minnow to catch a, a a barracuda, then a barracuda to catch a shark, and it's yeah. whether he Gunter can convince the rest of the intelligence, well, essentially the Americans, that it is better to keep mm-hmm. the sky on the line and catch the shark than it is to just simply catch the Barracuda, which is uh, effectively kind of the, the struggle in the film. It's not really anything to do with the 
who you would you would mm. perhaps consider the protagonist. It's uh, instead this uh, somewhat strange way of attempting to make his somewhat tainted views known to the CIA, who are who distrust him, even though it seems to be entirely their fault that he's mm-hmm. trusted in the first instance. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. After mm-hmm. expressing their concern about him, they then turn around and say, Yeah, it was kind of our fault that you're the you're in the position mm-hmm. you're in anyway. But so yeah, that that's, that's what appealed to me. Plus that and just the tremendous performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's uh, it's just really good to see mm-hmm. him getting a, a proper leading man role. So that that is another you know plus point in the film. Yeah, perhaps it's a bit less than a notch down from Tinker Taylor and in Spy who came in from Nicole, but it's a very slender notch. It's a very slender notch indeed. Yeah, I think there was I did still enjoy a lot about this film. It is it is definitely I'm not sure for me I think it was <laughs> we're splitting hairs now as to the definition of a slim notch. Um for me it was a, a slightly bigger <laughs> notch below the the other two, but I st- I did still really enjoy it. And I will say at first I was kind of baffled by the decision to cast, you know, Rachel McAdams and Philip Seymour Hoffman, as brilliant as Philip Seymour Hoffman has uniformly been or uniformly was throughout his time in the acting profession. You know, once you get past that initial kind of why the hell have they done that? Because there are any number of fantastic German actors who they probably could have And you accept the fact that it was probably a money decision and a marketing decision by the studio. Then- I mean, what's quite frustrating about that too is the fact that one of the best German actors I've seen in the last 15 years is yeah. in this mm-hmm. film. It's Daniel yep. Brühl. Uh, and he's like, wish you would have a better role. It's like, it's like Daniel Brühl's got his tiny role and Willem Dafoe's <laughs> yeah. playing a German. What's I, going I on? was almost baffled by the fact that Daniel Brühl would have accepted the role, given how given how small it was and, and given the work he's done at this point. But, I mean, Cela V, once you get past that and once you accept that's the way it is, to be in fairness to Philip Seymour Hoffman is excellent as always. I think there was there were maybe two points at which the accent kind of slipped. Um, Rachel McAdams also surprised me in terms of how convincing she was. Again, once you accept that they're there and you get in the mindset of okay, they're German, you have two options. You either go down the route of just let people use their natural accents and just pretend they're German, or have them adopt a German accent. And actually. I was concerned at first that I thought, oh my God, no, they're trying to do German accents. This is all going to go <laughs> Pete Tong very, very quickly. But actually, Rachel McAdams and, and uh, Seymour Hoffman were were fine by and large. I think Willem Dafoe seemed to struggle a little bit with it more. And his role, I think you're quite right, it was the one that was the most baffling. It's why this relatively, you know, second note character had to be an American actor. That role more than yeah. any of the three roles played by Americans could easily have been played by any number mm-hmm. of German actors. Um, yeah, and I think they had, as you mentioned about the accents, Craig, I think they really had to have them try for the accent because they actually had real Germans in it as well. Of course, but they were kind of they were kind of smart about it, and sort. Of, I guess they both kind of they didn't go they didn't go all in with with crazy uh, sort of with deep accent or anything. They went in fairly lightly, and it's if you go in for the authentic sort of if they'd gone in for an authentic Hamburg region accent and spent you know, a year with a voice coach preparing for the role. Usually when they do that and something so specific, it usually goes belly up. But here, to me, they just sort of adopted quite a laconic, generic, soft German accent that it was still obvious that they weren't native German, but it allowed you to kind of accept it and, and move on with it and not pay too much attention to it, which was which seemed reasonably well oh. judged. The, the question still hangs yeah, why yeah. They, f- they felt the need to cast any Americans at all, but... Yeah, it wasn't um, for instance, it wasn't a kind of 
Sean Bean and Patriot games sort of accent <laughs> level. I, mean, no. I didn't take you out of every second. You know? yeah. I was, I've been in meetings with hamburgers for the past uh, couple of days. Of course you have. To be fair, their, their German was uh, their English was probably better than mine. Yeah. So, as is so frequently the case <laughs> with the continental the Europeans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, but no, I did. I did really enjoy um, a most wanted man. It just it, it wasn't quite in that same league for me as Tinker Taylor and Spy who came in from the cold, but still, still very much a worthy picture. And as a as a procedural, and again, very much with a uh, again, I won't because this is a more recent film. I probably won't discuss any spoilers, but definitely an ending that comes as again quite a sucker punch. Uh, in fairness, and leaves you feeling quite. Yeah, ex- that was blindsided by that. Oh yeah, ending. absolutely, and is utterly exasperating because throughout the film if nothing else Gunther's not a character who's the sort of again it seems to be a Lakari thing but he likes a bit of a drink but he's not necessarily he's not necessarily a maverick he feels like an outsider but he's the guy who you immediately you it's fairly immediately obvious that actually his approach is the one that makes the most sense and at the approach of the other departments who are putting pressure on because of external pressures from the likes of, you know, allies such as the states, they're the guys who maybe aren't thinking rationally and the quick win is not the way to go. You're absolutely mm-hmm. behind Gunther throughout the film and, and his method, you're actually, you know, absolutely committed to it being the right one. Um, and without going into any detail, it's the, the ending is incredibly frustrating. Uh, of, co- of course. Yeah, you do feel for the character, don't you? Yeah, you really and, and not just for the character, but for the world at large, because actually you think, yeah, this is probably the sort of thing that goes on this sort of short-sighted term by term approach by politicians is the kind of thing that doesn't get the necessary work done and that is spoiling the ending for you if, if you can put two and two together <laughs> but yeah again it's it's that kind of trademark Lacari punch in the guts I suppose at the end very satisfying not quite the same league I don't feel um, as, as the other two films we've just discussed but yeah very satisfying nonetheless and I'm glad I watched it Right then so we've had a discussion of a few films of that are based on works by John le Carre. Now, the other big name in this field is Len Dayton. So we're going to move on to the most famous Len Dayton work, which is The Ipcris File, starring the great, if um, weirdly, starring the great Michael Caine. <laughs> I wondered where you were going with that. Weirdly, weirdly what? <laughs> uh, I was just going to make comments about what he's been saying recently, but I thought, nah, it's not the time or place now, so I don't Why? care. Why? What's, what's he been saying? Uh, just these Eurosceptic nonsense. Mm. It's like, it's when actors start getting political, it's like, just shut up. Also, when actors start getting 82, <laughs> you know, they start talking to empty chairs and sh- <laughs> so the Epicris file is one of the most enduring and iconic British spy movies outside of the Bond franchise. Starring Michael Caine in his first appearance as Harry Palmer in an adaptation of Len Dayton's book of the same name. Palmer is an army sergeant with a counterproductive attitude toward authority and he is surprised to be taken from surveillance duties and placed in the charge of Major Dalby. Dalby's concerned with an investigation into the disappearance and or brainwashing of Britain's key scientific minds. Uh, Assuming that he's been chosen for the task as an expendable asset, Palmer nonetheless undertakes the duty in his own inimitable fashion and covering plenty of double dealings and causing chaos along the way. I suppose... Let's throw my opening gambit in there. I'm, I'm going to say something, and I don't know if you're going to feel that it's, it's controversial, boys. As much as I think that John le Carre's adaptations, pound for pound, are objectively the better films and the better examples of filmmaking, I enjoy the hell out of the Ipcris file so much that if it came down to a wet weekend and I was stuck on the sofa, 
under a blanket and I had to choose one of these films that we've spoken about so far to watch, I would almost always go for The Ipcris File. I think in large part that's probably because Michael Caine is playing a role that's far more tinted by James Bond yeah. than, than the far more civil servanty types yes. that you'll find in like our that, films. That's the, th- that's the thing, right, is that for whatever reason, and I don't know because I've never read the source material, but I strongly suspect that it's the same case for the novel as it is for the movie. But the Ipcris file is pitched somewhere in the sweet spot between Lakari mm-hmm. and Bond, where yeah. people pull out the odd shooter occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> and although Palmer actually indulges, is seen to indulge <laughs> in more admin than any of the <laughs> the characters in uh, the Lakari works we've we've discussed, there there's enough of a there's enough of a blend between the sort of almost fantastical and the boring day to day craft. Of of the uh, espionage world, that it makes it it's it's Lacari with a little bit of juice. Yeah, I mean <laughs> the the actual the Epcris experiment, the mind control thing, is very Bond, really. Um, it's very Bond, but and and I know you said earlier you touched on the the projection thing, Scott, the projection booth thing, but it wasn't me. I'm I'm on board with the projection thing. I've read what MK Ultra got up to. I was going to say, oh, was it? Sorry, was it you it was me, that mentioned it? Yeah. Oh, okay. But actually, yeah, like Scott's, <laughs> well, Scott dismisses it out of hand stuff. It 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 strikes me as the sort of thing that actually the the Soviets didn't mind chucking a bit of money at bizarre stuff like that every now and again, and it doesn't strike me as being anything like as outlandish as some of the 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 MacGuffins or the or the the plot contrivances in the Bond films, for example. It's still, it's a little bit fantastical, but it's not invisible car fantastical, <laughs> if you know what I mean. No, I mean, it's not like people would be running around saying the Manchurian Candidate was particularly outlandishly yeah. plotted, but it's essentially the same thing, yeah, yeah, more yeah. or less. I, I just, the problem I have with this, um, I, I know what you're saying, and it's yeah, maybe not outlandish, but I just see, and it's not the same, but it's, for some reason, whenever I see that, the projection room. I always start thinking of on Her Majesty's Secret Service and the messages at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, at no point in the Ipcris file is Harley Palmer um, extolled the virtues of chickens. <laughs> I thought we were going to say you were thinking about the mega demo scene, but that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the whole of the Ipcris file is a sixty-four K demo. <laughs> <laughs> nah, just a sample of a guy going, listen to me, now listen to me, <laughs> over some sort of shifting vectors and warp effects. <laughs> the whole plasma tunnel effect thing. <laughs> a, little, a, little bit, a little bit of acid, a little bit of techno, loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think we've digressed slightly. <laughs> to be honest, I don't have an awful lot to say about that Bruce while, other than I enjoy it immensely. Um, Michael Caine gives a barnstorming performance that is essentially James Bond, but real, mm. more or less. Um, he has all the kind of the charm and the, the glibness of uh, some of like a Sean Connery era Bond, but it's applied to a plot that is borderline believable. Uh, certainly, all the investigation work up until the kind of final reveal in the last last half hour, or say, is perfectly believable, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and all that works tremendously well. And it is. It really doesn't age. It's the sort of film I've, I've watched yes. a number of times throughout the year, but it just feels almost contemporary all the way throughout it up until yeah, you know, maybe the last half hour. But it feels an awful lot like this is how things would always have went and will always will go. Even even um, though aesthetically it's kind of quintessentially sixties. True, true. Um, and like complaining about the, the 
the encroaching of um, American style supermarkets as opposed to the old <laughs> British corner shop and things like that. But even that somehow doesn't really date it all that much in a strange way. No, and yeah, I think too, you think of the 60s and you think like how suave Bond was and things, but you can't imagine him cooking for himself. But so that seems like out of yeah. place. But actually, nowadays, yeah, that, that would be spot on. Uh, um, also, just I'd largely agree with what Scott said there. I just add in that John Barry's theme for the Epicus file is basically the quintessential spy music. It's amazing. It's like, and you've heard it's been there's so many riffs on it, but that music, that style of music, it just it, it says spy. Um, and it's been used, that type of music um, has been used in so many things, even like video games like No One Lives Forever is clearly very uh-huh. inspired by the Epicus file, but it just, it's like, uh-huh. right, this is like 60s spy thing, but it's like the quintessential spy music. Yeah. Um, and I know John Barry's been much more associated with his work in James Bond, but that, I think, the Epicus file is his most successful work, actually. I would tend to agree with you on that, and also the cinematography. I don't really, I, maybe I just haven't, I'm certainly. I've never. I've never read anyone mention the cinematography of the Epcot file. But I, I, I take a step back from that statement. And I think how much have I actually read other people's opinions <laughs> of the Epcot file? Um, the cinematography as well. I, on this, this must be fourth or fifth time that I've watched the Epcot file over the years now. It's one of those films that I sort of watch every every five to six years, and this is the first time that I've really been struck by how how good the film looks. You know, it's it's got that it's got that classic spy thing of you know it uses a lot of dutch angles and and the cinematography the framing of some of the shots it's got some of that classic stuff of sort of eyes peering into a rear view mirror which then goes out of focus to reveal the view behind yeah, being this really beautifully framed shot of someone in a mac standing next to a pillar kind of yeah, thing some of that stuff is there's a really beautiful shot it's probably my favorite shot in the film actually of looking through the gap in a parking meter about somebody yes. approaching across uh, the road. Oh, it's just it's yeah. fantastically done. It's just such craft in that. Yeah, there's so much to enjoy about it, really, that I think probably the first time I saw this film, it might have been yourself that convinced me to watch this, Scott, some time ago, or your mention of it. Am I correct in saying that this is a film that you have a fondness for from quite some time ago? I'm fairly sure I first saw this in high school yeah. when I was still running around basically doing terrible Michael impersonations at everybody. That's right. And uh, this would be one of the things that uh, inspired me to do said terrible Michael Caine impersonations. <laughs> I want to say it was about that time and I don't th- I think it was probably your mention of it that um that got me off my backside and and found a copy of it or or found it showing on TV at some point taped it and watched it. And uh, one of the films that really probably i think as a teenager it stirred some sort of interest purely stylistically but now i only really appreciate that element of it uh now that my my faculties have developed sufficiently we're saying we like that Bruce file and we think you should watch it if you've not seen it already well i did want to mention this i know we've not done much like trivia or anything to this, so it's not really the point but it's something because I mean, michael kane is so iconic in most roles that he's in and mm. i think um Harry Palmer's one of his more iconic ones, and you believe Michael Caine. So you think because at first, like, you know, his bosses think he's a thug, but you realise no, he's actually he's a gourmet too. He's quite a complex character. But Michael Caine's believable like that. But there are mm-hmm. a couple of other people considered for the role. Um, now Christopher Plummer, I, I think, would have been quite forgettable. Richard mm-hmm. Harris was considered for, it, and that. Richard Harris, I think, would have worked for this. Again, you can imagine him, but there's a power to Richard Harris, a physicality, right? Yeah, that's one of those where it would have been a very different film, though. Yeah, it would have been a very different film, but I think 
Richard Harris would have worked in the role, okay? Mm-hmm. But one of the people that was considered for this, and I just cannot get my head around this, is why I wanted to Wait mention Wait a minute, it. Burt Reynolds. It's always Burt Reynolds. It's not Burt Reynolds. <laughs> is it Channing Tatum? It's not. That would have been... Oh, I like Channing Tatum. No, I would have no problem with Channing Tatum. Harry H. Corbett. What? The son. Stepdown son. Or son. <laughs> what? Seriously, yep. Yeah. Um... Harry H. Corbett, the son from Steptoe and Son, was considered for the role of Harry Palmer. I can only imagine that speaks more to the death of kind of authentic-ish working-class actors <laughs> going around at the time than it does. Wow. Very possibly, The actual yeah. sense of that casting decision. <laughs> now listen to me, Palmer. Listen to me. You dirty old man. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> it's, it's probably worth mentioning at this point that we will be covering another uh, Len Dayton Harry Palmer escapade uh, in her commentary track. Yes. Due with you in 10 days, which we shall be covering Funeral in Berlin. So, um, a lot of the films we've covered so far have been having a largely British cast. So, what we're going to do is move to the other side of the Atlantic. This time for 1974's The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman. So, The, the Conversation has long been one of my favourite films, and I guess not technically a spycraft movie in the strictest sense of the word, but in moving west of the Atlantic Divide, I suppose we may as well shake things up a little bit and expand the uh, definition a little bit. And it very much is an espionage movie in the sense of surveillance. So Gene Hackman plays Harry Cole, a private surveillance expert with a reputation for almost magical abilities in the audio recording field. He's hired by a security service director to spy on his wife with her lover. Cole, mindful of his experiences on a previous job that led to deaths, becomes convinced that in turning over his tapes to this director, he is condemning the two lovers to a similar fate. Unaware of the true nature of the scenario playing out before him in snippets of stolen audio, Cole gradually descends into paranoia and isolation, leading to a terrible revelation that his fears have been tragically misplaced. There you go. That's the long and short of the conversation. Everybody talks about Apocalypse Now as Francis Ford Coppola's great movie, but to me, the conversation is actually his his, his best work. Um, I, I've and, never really rated Apocalypse Now. I thought Francis Ford Coppola's best film was comfortably good, Father Part 2. But um, mm. the conversation's up there. I think Apocalypse Now is is the greatest of cinematic indulgences, right? It's the thing of legend that I think the legend is bigger than the actual, the the benefits of the work itself. The conversation is the film that demonstrated to me, and I guess I suppose The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two mm-hmm. are fantastic works. But I think the conversation is the kind of film that actually is very difficult to pull off convincingly. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, this is a very hard target to aim for. I mean, particularly given the lead character you've got here. Gene Hackman is great, but yeah. this is him an anti- being an anti-social, anti-Gene Hopman. Yeah, an antisocial shut-in who points microphones at people from a distance mm. and snoops on conversations. What's, and, and what's try- cinematically appealing about that? Yeah, trying to make him a sympathetic character, uh, which he winds up doing because... Uh, poor old Harry is not particularly uh, well. He doesn't seem to be living a particularly great life. Uh, the, the kind of the the racket that he's gotten has got to him, and he is now just constantly looking over his shoulder. Even though he perhaps shouldn't be. I mean, he he's on the private business. He he's not. He shouldn't perhaps be so um, mindful of repercussions from like other parties, but. Nonetheless, he is because that's what he spends his entire life doing. So it leads to having 
this guy having a very kind of tragic, very sad kind of isolated life where he won't open up to anyone. So it's, it's a, a fascinating central character to build the film around, which is, I think, what makes this film uh, something special. The, the uh, technical aspects of how he's able to record all these things are also uh, interesting, particularly if you have a, a hankering for this kind of espionage stuff. However, uh, the main hook in this film is just that tragic character that uh, Harry Cole is, and the nuts and bolts of it are probably less important than Gene Hackman's characterization of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's it's certainly a career best performance from him. I mean, it's uh, I mean, toss a coin between this and the French uh, Connection. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it's a tremendous well toss a coin between this, the French Connection, and Superman Four: The Quest for Peace. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, a, t- a terrific central performance, and that's really the captivating thing. And uh, apparently, something that was very hard for Hackman to do because it is the the complete opposite of what Gene Hackman is in in, in his day to day life. Yeah, it, it impressed me an awful lot. It's a very slow burning film, but mm-hmm. uh, something that's rewarding and something that uh, is almost more of a character study than it is espionage related. Although obviously, the espionage element and the, the terms of the secret recordings and all that kind of thing play such a large part in. Uh, the crisis that causes Harry Cole to uh, freak out towards the end. But yeah, very, very compelling film and very, very good to watch. Yeah, it's in fact it's so elusive that I think the first, the first four or five times I watched this movie, I started watching it, and it wasn't until my fifth or sixth viewing, and I don't exaggerate that I actually made it to the end, because this is this falls into a really specific category for me, and it's. It's a, it's the midnight movie that isn't a midnight movie. There's something about this movie that if I find myself in a situation where I've got the house to myself, it's late at night, I know I don't want to go to bed. Maybe it's 11 o'clock, something like that. I want to watch something. There's nothing on, nothing on television. The conversation, for some reason, has become my go-to film. And for a period of... 10 years since I first went to watch this movie on recommendation, I never made it to the end. As bizarre as that sounds, even though I enjoyed it massively up until whatever point I fell asleep at. Um, And it wasn't until five or six years ago that I actually watched this all the way through to the end. And I kind of feel like that. (laughs) I kind of feel like my inability to keep my eyes open (laughs) has built up some sort of gradual reveal to the prop, the plot revelations of the movie. But actually, the first, (laughs) the first time at which I managed to watch this all the way through, I was just so blown away by it. My introduction to Francis Ford Coppola wasn't The Godfather; it was Apocalypse Now, and I struggled with it to a great degree. And I found it difficult to understand why everybody revered that as the sort of the touchstone movie of the seventies, as it were. Uh, and certainly of the the sort of the Vietnam War genre, and I think perhaps for some time that clouded my opinion of him as a director. And this is the film that swept that away and made me realise that holy smoke, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola for him, for him as a director to be able to pull off this film, whether or not he was working with an actor at the top of his game like uh, Gene Hackman clearly is here. It absolutely solidified to me the fact that he is one of the one of the great directors of the of well, of the 20th century. I think a movie of this scale, which deals in something so personal as Harry Cole's character and his internal struggle, um, is very, very compelling for whatever reason. And I think there's not really an example of a film that works better on a personal level with the the main character than, than the conversation. But there you go. Oh, I don't know what I was trying to say. I think you might identify with that uh, somewhat isolationist 
tone that Hackman's character builds up in his... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not shutting, but there is something about that character that I think, yeah, I, I empathise with, but I'm not sure. I think there's something of that character in everybody. Yes. It's not that I'd make a case for myself as a as a Harry, you know, as the quintessential Harry call. I think probably in some respect everyone can identify to him, especially I think this is one of those films that becomes more prescient as, as time has gone on, and it's perhaps more relevant now in an age in which people are... People feel more connected, but in reality are more isolated than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his descent into sort of paranoia from behind, a, you know, a, a barricade of electronic equipment feels feels really, really oddly prescient in, in the time that we're living in now. And this is a film which is over 40 years old now. Um, and there's something that still speaks about it. And I think any film that endures that length of time and remains as compelling and as relevant as anything being produced today uh, is, yeah... There you go. I feel like I'm rambling now. Pretty good. I liked it. Yeah. So I, I, I don't have much to add, so I'm just not going to say anything. So um, <laughs> I would just be saying, yeah, he's right. Um, so. Um, so listen, that was a conversation. Um, I've no idea how much listeners are going to have gotten from that because by the time it's been edited, it may be less than cohesive. So unfortunately, Drew has had to leave us, but Scott and I are going to rattle through the last couple of uh, movies that we wanted to talk about. Anyway, Scott, what was next on the list? Continuing the transatlantic theme, which has been a little bit lacking so far, but we're going to talk about The Good Shepherd, Hmm. the 2006 Robert De Niro-directed film, uh, which we have Matt Damon as Edward Wilson. Uh, He is the head of essentially what will become the CIA Mm -hmm. uh, as as it goes forward. It's it's not at the time, but it it kind of essentially acts as a history of the American covert intelligence agencies. Yes. um, As it kind of tracks it from the start, just before the Second World War, all the way through to what would eventually become the the CIA that we know and love today. Oh, (laughs) and how we love. How we love those clandestine fools. Yes, so there's probably not a lot of joy to be had uh, trying to go through the plot step by step, but essentially it's talking about Edward Wilson, who's a, a kind of composite of two other somewhat historically based fellas, uh, as he struggles to maintain what his sense of morality is in a, a world which in, in increasingly, increasingly makes him take actions and authorise actions that are somewhat against the, the normal run of morality, as you might expect. Uh, of course, it, it also plays quite heavily into his family life. He he, he marries, rel- marries relatively early in his career, but because he's posted away for years at a time, of course, his, his family kind of grows increasingly distant to him, uh, leaving this character who is nominally one of the most powerful people uh, in the world, mm-hmm. you could argue, um, leaving him almost entirely isolated uh, and alone, uh, particularly by the end of the film. And I am. Um, it's a film that I, I remember watching in two thousand six and thinking that's quite good, and then never really thinking of it at all until it became mentioned in the uh, the knockabout lists of what we were thinking of covering for this episode. I was surprised when I looked about it earlier. It's not really that well regarded. Um, I suppose mm-hmm. I can see some of the more common knocks against it. it. Is even by the standards of the stuff we're talking about today, very deliberately paced. Yeah, it is a it is a rather slow film, and it does kind of push your attention span, I think, to its limits. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's 
I think there's enough interesting things going on between uh, Matt Damon's performance and the just the general overture of the things as it kind of works its way through the Second World War, through the Bay of Pigs, and and so on and so forth. That um, the kind of internal house cleaning that uh, that occurs when it becomes apparent that there's a, a spy in the agency. I think all that works reasonably well. I think it holds its, it holds my attention at least quite well throughout all that time. Um, it's not my favourite film, I would say, that we've talked about today. It's, it's probably lower on the picking order, maybe the lowest come think of it, but it's still quite a very enjoyable film, I thought. Um, it's something that doesn't really deserve the, the kind of middling reviews that it's been given. Um, there's enough marrow to be sucked from it that I think that uh, makes it well worth a watch. The last time I watched this film was probably a couple of years after it was released. I think that was a second watch. I can't recall all that much about it, if I'm honest. Um, it's the one film that I didn't get round to because it does have a substantial running time. Mm-hmm. It's the one film that I didn't get round to rewatching in preparation for this podcast. What I will say uh, is that it does feature women being thrown out of a plane, and for that reason, I enjoyed it greatly. Yes, we may be about the only women we've spoken about so far. Um, yeah. Pretty much all the films we're going to talk about in this bit of a sausage fest. <laughs> is a, exactly. I've got a notice in front of me here where I'd written down. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd been introducing this rather than Drew, I was going to mention <laughs> Sausage Fest. The world, the world of espionage does seem to be a bit of a sausage fest. Uh, the other kind of slightly bizarre insinuation I, I took from this as I watched it earlier today was that uh, it seemed to be claiming that there was no such thing as American spying agencies before World of War II, mm. uh, as it kind of introduces us back to um, Dumbledore the Second's character. <laughs> <laughs> And, and he's saying, now you really need to learn all the black arts that the British have to teach us here because we don't know them. Like, are, are you sure about that? Are you sure? <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, it's a bit of a... It, it does seem to paint the CIA in... Well, attempts to do it in, in a kind of uh, a support of a white light. It's trying to see that these guys are always just trying to protect uh, American interests, but sometimes their ethics are somewhat uh, contrary to what the, the characters may actually wish themselves. But um, yeah. yeah, somehow it, it does work for me. It, it, it's in no way painting anyone as a as a hero. Um, it's certainly by the end of it, you get the, a certain degree of introspection on uh, Matt Damon's part, which uh, you can you can quite yeah. clearly see, even if it's not actually stated. But if you're paying any kind of attention to it, it's, it's clearly not being laudatory towards most of the CIA's goals, as most most films do, <laughs> talking about the CIA aren't. So, Well, yeah. exactly. And I think, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I, I do... I do recall, <laughs> I can't speak with any authority because it's clearly been about eight years since I last watched this film, but um, I do recall um, really enjoying uh, The Good Shepherd, and, or rather, but at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to just anybody unless you have at least a passing interest in the, the, the genre of spycraft, in which case I would certainly say go for it. Um, and one of its... I think one of the points that it's to be noted on is the fact that, yes, for an American studio picture, it is quite open to the notion that, look, the world of espionage, by definition, is a, a world of subterfuge and deception. And it's not there to convince you that the Americans are the good guys in all of this. It, it kind of sets its stall out as being, look, this is a, a function of necessity. And, and by necessity, this work involves this kind of behavior. And I think it's, it's quite frank about that. And it's, yeah, I, 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 when I first watched the, the Good Shepherd, I looked at the reviews. It's kind of a, 
I guess what a five or six out of ten kind of average was the I think at the time the something the, like those lines, yeah. Yeah, the review score, and I was kind of baffled by that. I because I I really really did enjoy it, and it's an investment in time because I think it's close to pushing three hours, right? Runtime. Yeah. Um, it certainly is an investment of time, but it's not. It's by no means a perfunctory uh movie. Yeah, it's a very well crafted film. I thought it's one mm. of De Niro's uh, not particularly many directorial outfit uh, out things and i think it works pretty well i think he's done he's done a great job of getting a stellar uh, performance out of matt damon who's sort of dependably reliable in this kind of thing i think uh but uh yeah i, th- I think it works uh, quite well as i say you do need a certain predisposition to this sort of uh, thing if, but if you are so inclined then this is a, a great outing to it's still one of matt damon's best performances it's a restrained performance as well he's, he's He's described in in many places as a man of silence, and that's really what you get, but it's a silence that speaks volumes, so to speak. Yeah. An interesting movie. Let's go straight on to Munich, because I Mm -hmm. think a lot of the things that I would say about Munich are the same things I would have just said about The Good Shepherd. That makes sense. It's... The same sort of tricks. Um, you, you're basically uh, in this film. You have Eric Banner heading up a squad who is tasked with uh, tracking down and killing uh, the people behind the uh, Munich uh, Olympics uh, atrocity, where some Palestinian terrorists kidnapped some Israeli athletes and killed them. Hmm. Um, and and Gold- Golda Meir didn't stand for that. Shit. No, he w- they were not happy about that at all. So they they decided to spend it as much time and money as he comes through to tracking down and killing these people in acts of revenge. It's open to an awful lot of criticism, I would think. It's mm. uh, morally far more obviously ambiguous than anything we've spoken about so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it It's pretty clear from the outset that this is, as you could characterise pretty much all the Middle East conflicts <laughs> to this point, it's barbarism in response to barbarism. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to actually take your heroes seriously as heroes. And certainly at points they they have their own conflicts about exactly what they're doing as the extrajudicial murder, essentially, that they're performing upon these terrorists. <laughs> it's even essentially, it just is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's obviously good to working outside the law. And while they may feel they're morally justified, others wouldn't. You could, it, The films, I think fairly even-handed in making points that the, the atrocities that are occurring in response to the atrocities that these guys are committing are just an, an ever-escalating an ever uh, spawn of more violence, and it's not really helping anyone in the long term. You can happily debate whether these guys that you're featured are actually heroes or villains. I think all that works pretty well in terms of something to talk around. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, however, as a film, I find Munich a little bit dull, mm-hmm. um, surprisingly, given the, the content that's going on. But it's just it's very slowly paced. A lot of the agonisms that the characters are going through are kind of signposted, maybe a little bit overly melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, Spielberg, a Steven Spielberg-directed film, but his... His penchant for the the kind of more emotional side of things, I think, doesn't really serve him particularly well in this instance. It's, it, it's still a worthy film, but it's not enjoyable, and it's too long, and it's a bit slow, and it, it, the, the performances, although they're great, they're a bit heavy-handed. It's 
it's still good. It's still worth going for. It's it's worth thinking yeah. about these things more for the the thoughts that it provokes around the Israel Palestine conflicts. But it's not in itself a film that I can wholeheartedly recommend, apart from the mm. thoughts that it provokes outside of it actually being a film. If that makes any sense, I, I get the impression that maybe I enjoyed it more as a film than you did. But I think yeah, the the central power of it is the invoking of that discussion about. Yeah, it it deals in a very grey area, and I remember when Munich came out, it, you know, there were the sort of predictable calls of, oh, it's Jew, it's a Jew making a, a movie about how Jews were right to slaughter Palestinians, and I and I don't think it is that at all. Um, no, there was equally a very strong reaction saying that it was apologetic on behalf of the Palestinians. Yeah, so exactly, uh, bizarrely, which yeah. which is kind of a clue as to the fact, yeah, it's actually a yeah. fairly even-handed movie, um, yeah. and far less of a propaganda piece than people might suspect. And I, I think anyone suggesting that Steven Spielberg makes a, a movie as a propaganda piece is is doing the man a great disservice. I certainly yeah. have more faith in him than that. Yeah, it's it's a movie which provokes a great deal of thought, and it does have its flaws. But I mean, I I suspect I found the pace of it less a problem than maybe yourself. But I do agree that it does it does succumb to the sort of sentimentalism of Spielberg uh, slightly more than I would have liked it to have done. And I also feel like I needed Eric Bana to be more of a compelling central character than he than he yeah. is in the movie. But I still regard it as as sort of in the I mean you're splitting hairs here when you say like, oh it's in the it's in the upper half of my favourite Spielberg movies list. Um <laughs> that it's you know, for what that's worth. Um I really did enjoy Munich and it's an interesting it's an interesting entry in the espionage genre because it is very definitely that but it's a side of the espionage genre which we haven't seen which is a he, he, here's where a state uses espionage as a, a measure of retaliation yeah um, and almost reaching out in anger and that's not something we've seen before and for someone who's for someone who grew up in Thatcher's Britain it was enlightening for me to see that for all that people talk about, you know, regardless of how you you viewed her as the the, the leader of, of of Western democracy, you know, people tend to to cite Mag- Margaret Thatcher as being these the sort of the the epitome of the the strong female leader. But actually, Golda Meir was there. <laughs> Golda Meir was there a good five or six years before her, taking no shit. Um, and sending out strong messages uh, when people tried to mess with the the state of Israel. Despite its flaws, I still kind of like Munich, perhaps more than I should do, but I still have kind of a soft spot for it. And of Spielberg's latter output, it's by no means means the weaker entry or the weakest entry. Uh, And I still think it's worth, if you're you're interested in the, the genre at all, then it's definitely worth a look. Yes, and if you're a Spielberg fan, it's better than AI. Well, perhaps we should crash on into another couple of uh, films. Let's talk about some Alfred Hitchcock films. Yes. There's a few films that we, we, when we put this list together of the things we might want to talk about, there's a few there that were highly recommended by uh, various online sources and such like that we kind of put together. However, I think there's maybe a couple of them that don't actually fall into the realms of spycraft. Uh, they're films that kind of use spycraft as a crutch or as a plot device to mm-hmm. let other things go. And I think the two Hitchcock films that we're going to talk about fall, I think, into that category. Let's first just, let's go chronologically. We're talking about the 39 Steps, in which we find uh, Roger Haney, as a general uh, member of the public, uh, Richard Haney, picks up a girl at a variety hall performance, 
who talks to him about a, a somewhat cock and bull story about uh, secrets that are uh, vital to the, the country's continuation and also that people are after him. He dismisses that pretty much initially, however, uh, when he wakes up in the morning, he finds that the girl is dead, he's been framed for his murder, and he needs to go on the run. His only hope of clearing his name is the 39 steps clue that has been given to him, which leads Hanny on a, a merry chase up to Scotland to uncover the source of this uh, this spy, this, this leak that is possibly in threatening the future of Britain, and uh, taking things from there now. It's quite difficult to think about this from the point of view of being Scottish. Now, I assume you watch the same thing as I did, the 1935 version. Yes. Because it was remade, I think, uh, some years later in colour, but it's the black and white 35 version. Richard Chamberlain or someone like that. Yes. Now, the problem with the 1930s film is that, as I touched upon earlier, there was not an awful lot of authentic working class, or in this case, Scottish voices... (laughs) are available to be cast in these films because they were all often dying in various world wars. Mm-hmm. And so you, you wind up with this peculiar thing, and it's common to pretty much everything in this era, so it's kind of slightly unfair to focus on this too much. But you basically have people impersonating Scottish accents for essentially the two-thirds of this film <laughs> and not doing a tremendously good job of it. Now, <laughs> I, I encourage you at this point to do a Google search for the fast show Posh Cockney's Northern Pub, because that is effectively what you have here. You have some very effective, rather trained actors attempting to do Scottish accents with varying degrees of success, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And that makes it quite difficult for a Scottish person to take much of this film particularly seriously. Uh, I kind of, uh, I mean... um, John Laurie aside, right? I think John Laurie who played the crofter, um, mm. who most people will probably recognise from Dad's Army as what's his character in Dad's Army again? We're doomed. Was he Scottish? Jock. <laughs> yeah, Jock. <laughs> probably Jock. John Laurie was actually Scottish, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think he might be the only actor <laughs> in this film playing a Scottish part who's actually <laughs> actually Scottish. So yes, I suspect I found the same issues that you did Scott, which are which are specific to the Scottish viewership, which is that um, it's it's difficult to see past the lack of authentic Scottish character portrayals in this movie. Having said that, if you can set this aside, Hitchcock's Thirty Nine Steps is actually quite an effective little piece, and it threw me a bit of a rope a dope because for all that Hitchcock is one of the quintessential directors of the twentieth century, this film made me realise more than any other that I am massively unfamiliar with his work and mm-hmm. I say that as someone who I think North by Northwest is easily within my top 10 films of all time but actually hugely unfamiliar with his back catalogue and I had made the mistake of assuming at the point at which I sat down and watched this that The 39 Steps was a very early entry in his directorial canon and it's actually something like his 21st film <laughs> that's ridiculous but what struck me about it was how how much of a template it clearly became for North by Northwest. Yeah. And it shares a huge number of similar elements with that. It does have its own peculiarities, uh, certainly, and its own arc and its own um, interests. But I think 
between the 39 steps and north by northwest, very closely linked biological um, cousins that they are. Uh, north by northwest is by far the superior film, but that's not to say that I didn't enjoy the 39 steps to some degree. There's a great deal to be enjoyed there. I largely agree with that. It's a, it's a solid story. Uh, John Buchanan's story has been around for much longer than this, and it's, a, it's an effective, it's, it's a, an enjoyable story to draw from. It's not really anything where spycraft happens in it, no. to be honest. Um, it's largely a chase movie. He is uh, under suspicion from the start, and basically he's trying to escape uh, as best he can, while at the same time uncovering this... this uh, it's about an everyman being mistaken him. for a spy. Yes, yes. And it's it doesn't really have much of the, the way of uh, spycraft that perhaps we're kind of focused on here, but still, nonetheless, it's a very enjoyable film. It's a nice little uh, chase film. If you like something like, I don't know, The Fugitive, then 39 Steps, if you've not seen it already, is certainly well worth a look at. It's far more sophisticated than its use-by date of 1935 would suggest, actually, but that's obviously one of the, the marks of Hitchcock as a director. But yeah, it's certainly, it's of interest. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that the thing that most engaged me, actually, and threw me, even as someone who considers North by Northwest as one of their favourite films, was that it's a great example of Hitchcock uh, deviating from formula in that the reveal of the uh, central antagonist happens much sooner in this movie than you would expect it to. Uh, the details given uh, the sort of the character traits of this person who are hinted at at the start of the film are something that you think would be the big reveal, the big twist, uh, perhaps at the end of the film. But actually, uh, the reveal of the uh, the antagonist comes about what twenty minutes in. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Um, and so, for for uh, for a contemporary viewer, one of the great strengths of this film is that it kind of throws you a curveball in that respect uh, and subverts your expectations, or at least it certainly did mine. Uh, and that is enough of a hook that I wanted to keep watching uh, the film to the end for all of its flaws. And they are flaws that you would expect from a film which is now eighty, some eighty-one years old. Um, yeah. But it. It doesn't feel 81 years old, so uh, it might not be my favourite film on this list that we're talking about tonight, uh, but it's certainly not my least favourite either. It was it was an interesting diversion, and I'm, I'm certainly glad I watched it. It puts a lot of other things in context. Yeah, and it has some nice banter between Robert Donat and uh, Madeleine Carroll. But yes, it's, it's an enjoyable watch, and... Something that's worth taking a look at. Um, more famous amongst uh, Hitchcock's works is Notorious, in which we see uh, a gangster rapper, Notorious B.I.G. Uh, <laughs> hang on, no, that's confusing. No, that's just wrong. I haven't, yes. I, I haven't watched Notorious Scott, but I'm pretty sure that's not it. Well, it it is. It's just a, a very confusing. Uh, one. We're talking, of course, about the 1946 version with Cary Grant and uh, Ingrid Bergman, not the uh, notorious B.I.G. biopic, in, in case, for some reason, you thought that was going to be the case. Um, and and I think for similar reasons, it's, it's another pretty good Hitchcock film, uh, one of his uh, operational on, certainly his top half. Of course, the top half in Hitchcock's case is like, what, 35 films or something? So Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's essentially more of a romance between Grant and Bergman than it is about spying, really. Although the the backdrop of it is that uh, Ingrid Bergman's character is recruited after her father is imprisoned for treason, and it is seen that she could be useful in infiltrating a ring of Brazilians uh, who are in league with the Nazis, and she could use her uh, family ties as a way way into that, uh, that inner group. However, the main thrust of it is really more the the romance and the the relationship between Grant and Bergman and their chemistry. And certainly they have great chemistry between the two. And Spycraft is sort of 
not exactly taking a back seat to it, but it's not really the true focus of the film for me. Uh, it's more based around that kind of that character interactions between Bergman and Grant. And on that basis alone, it's worth watching. I mean, they're two. It's obviously two of the, well, perhaps the most iconic cinematic yeah, relationships amongst a number of films. So it's certainly worth watching on that basis. Uh, Hitchcock, of course, knows how to direct this sort of thing, and they can act themselves out of the page. So it, it, it works pretty well on a number of levels. It's not really anything to do with spycraft on the grand scheme of things, certainly compared to the other films we've talked about today. However, it's still certainly worth a look at. I don't know whether you'd say the same of the other film on our list. Uh, it, it's also film falling into a category that I think is perhaps not altogether related to Spycraft uh, once I've come to view it, but I hadn't seen Eye of the Needle, the 1981 Donald Sutherland vehicle, until uh, just the other week there. Um, it's a very good film, um, directed by Richard Marquand. Um, Donald Sutherland plays... Uh, a character who's infiltrated British society. We were introduced fairly early on into things that he's actually a German spy uh, during the kind of World War II era. And he we're introduced to him kind of infiltrating a small uh, English town and taking a kind of a reasonable, uh, reasonably high position in uh, British commands where he's uh, has access to troop movements. Uh, however, his cover is eventually blown and he's forced to go undercover and we pick him up towards the end of the war where he's reactivated by a German uh, high command to figure out the location of the D-Day landings. Uh, there's a, an operation which escapes with them and I shan't look it up, but we were part of the, 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 the ploy to kind of keep Hitler guessing where we were going to actually be uh, <clears throat> conducting landings for was building a, an airstrip, an airbase full of essentially balsa wood planes uh, and these kind of things, uh, lots of uh, lots of really interesting things that spies actually got to during the war and stopped going un- unexamined by this uh, this podcast, which is perhaps worth <laughs> worth a look at itself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, th- so he's he's tasked with uh, examining these uh, airfields and uh, seeing if they're actually legit or not. He he finds out that of course they are not legit and is on his way to be picked up by a, a U-boat off the coast of Scotland. So he, in a similar manner to Roger, Roger, to uh, Hannay's character in 39 Steps, has to bolt his way up across the UK up to Scotland to try and find his escape point. At which point, of course, the, the very uh, balance of the war could have been swung in a completely different direction. So uh, there's a great manhunt out to stop him. And essentially this becomes more of a, a kind of manhunt film than it really does anything to do with spycraft after he makes his uh, discovery in the first few reels of the film, really. Nonetheless, it's a particularly enjoyable film, largely due to Sutherland's performance. It's uh, he, he does a very good job of being kind of affable at the same time, just turning in, in a flick of an eye to being very, very cold, very calculating and uh, killing people uh, in that instance. So, <laughs> as well does. Well. Yes, he's... he's he manages to pull off that uh, that kind of casual psychopathy <laughs> quite well. So fair play to Donald Sutherland in that instance. Uh, yeah, quite an enjoyable film. Um, something that's well worth taking a look at if you haven't done already. Yes, I would give that one a bash if you haven't done so. And that leaves us with, I think, a film which uh, certainly I touched upon in a, uh, a previous recent podcast, but which at the time yourself and Drew hadn't seen, which I believe you've now caught up with, and that is Bridge of Spies. Yes, Bridge of Spies, uh, the latest Tom Hanks outing. The essential gimmick of Bridge of Spies is that we see uh, his character, who's an insurance agent, I believe, at the time, taking on the role of negotiating a spy trade 
between the East and the West, uh, which rather cuts down its uh, plot somewhat there, but I don't think there's an awful lot more than that. No, it's a fairly uh, simple really setup. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think the most interesting thing in this film is uh, the number of really great central performances that you've got. Um, Tom Hanks himself, well, he's always been a good actor. He's always been an actor that is a little bit... Um, Tom Hanksian in his, his roles. There's always something yes. that kind of pulls you out of his performance. That's he, always he, been my problem. He does like a 98% great performance in pretty much everything he's in, and that 2% is like, and okay, I'm not convinced by that in particular, but I think this might be one of the first ones where he's full character, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's perhaps the, the outstanding thing on this for me. Again, it shares a lot of the things we've spoken about before. It's very deliberately paced, there's not a lot of action that you'll see in here. It's all based around some fairly clandestine meetings and uh, trying to figure out exactly what what people are what people mean when they say something, which is not exactly the same as the things that they're <laughs> yeah. saying. It's it's quite a, a nicely balanced and layered performance, uh, a layered film, um, helped by a, a great performance by Mark Rylance. Mm-hmm. And there, there's really not much of a weak link in the film. It's a, it's a very enjoyable film. Again, has the Spielbergian thing of being perhaps a little bit too long, mm-hmm. uh, but that's really the only criticism I have of it, and that's not much of a criticism uh, because I was certainly quite entertained for all of the uh, time that I spent with it. Yes, I, a highly enjoyable film, and uh, if you've any interest at all in the spy genre, and particularly in the science, it's what happens to spies after they're caught and the kind of the, the great game of uh, political gerrymandering that occurs after it, yeah. and the, the kind of spy exchange, then sort of. Uh, essentially it's what happens when spycraft goes wrong uh, mm-hmm. as you wind up in a situation like this and it's uh, certainly a very interesting thing to see. Yeah, I've really enjoyed Bridge of Spies. I mean, I'm not going to say too much about it because I, I gave my opinion of it in a previous podcast and you should check that out if you haven't already. Um, but I think the point I made then about some criticism I'd seen levelled at Bridge of Spies that it was... Uh, Spielberg on autopilot which I think is really unfair and I'll mention again here for for anyone who who didn't listen to the previous podcast but someone a director operating on autopilot and a director being really comfortable with the process that they're working in and having confidence in their uh, their actors to deliver what is necessary are two different things entirely and the impression I get from this film is that this is Spielberg and he may well you know I do get the impression that Spielberg was quite comfortable with this piece. I don't see that as a bad thing. I feel as though he had the confidence in Hanks and Mark Rylance to deliver the performances required to carry this film. And it is very much a film which depends on its performances. And I don't think that's yeah. I don't think that's to Spielberg's detriment that in this occasion he recognised that. And he, as a director, almost takes a back seat to that. That to me, in this circumstance, yeah, there are directors to whom that would be an easy way out. But in this instance, I will give Spielberg the benefit of the doubt on previous yeah. performance, you know, on uh, on his past achievements and s- suggest that actually this is Spielberg understanding the material, understanding the tools he has to work with and appreciating that on this occasion, his job as his job as a director was to step back a little bit and let his two um, his two main players carry the film, and I think they do that really admirably. There are one or two parts I had an issue with. The one that sticks in my craw a little bit is the sort of the callback towards the end of the film of the scene where the the children are running through the garden and they go to climb over the 
they go yeah. to charge over the fence, and it's a it's a shout back to the scene in which uh, Hanks is sitting on a train, similarly on a train going past the the Berlin Wall, and he witnesses people trying to cross the Berlin Wall and being shot. And in the latter scene, his sort of relief that the children make it over the garden fence uh, in one piece, in the sense of uh, you know the achievement of a job well done. <laughs> and this is yeah, it's like yes, yeah. that's right. I did my I did my piece. I'm just witnessing good old American suburbia. Um, <laughs> that feels a little bit overtly Spielbergian, but I kind of feel like I'm being harsh in that assessment because if it had been anyone else's film but Spielberg, I might not have made that judgment. I might have said that was a really nice callback. Uh, but overall, uh, I mean, of the films I saw in the in the cinema last year, this is uh, is comfortably in the uh, the top three, I think, um, and I really enjoyed it. It's one of Spielberg's more relaxed, more sedately paced pieces, as much of his latter output has been. So yeah, really, really fantastic film. You know, a different side of the spycraft genre, but it does certainly fall into the category that we're discussing tonight and that it reviews that side of, okay, what's what's the process and what's the procedure where the spy game goes wrong? And I would highly recommend it. Certainly is one of the, the best studio pictures that I saw last year. Yep, indeed. I heartily agree with that. Uh, certainly worth looking at if you haven't done already. Well, thanks very much for your attention there as we... Run our way through our favourite uh, spycraft-related films. <laughs> and and uh, descended into alcoholism. Yes, uh, as we've battled with our demons, <laughs> and, as, and as nations battle with their own demons. This brings us to an end to this podcast. Uh, we've we've not been... Uh, We've not been soliciting an awful lot of Twitter feedback in this one. We did just get one in there, just there from the Magic Lantern podcast, saying that they're also partial to the John Lee Carr adaptations, such as uh, Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy and The Spy Who Came Out From The Cold. So that's nice of them. Um, it's good to know that we're not alone in that uh, in that opinion. It's certainly probably the, the best that we've spoken about so far. They, they mentioned The Spy Who Came Out From The Cold and The Deadly Affair as being their favourites. So uh, certainly ones that were on our list. Nice. Uh, we will be back with you fairly soon. We will be back in um, a mere 10 days with our coverage of the second in the Harry Palmer trilogy as we give you a commentary for the film Funeral in Berlin. Assuming we recover from our formidable hangovers, <laughs> we will return on the 10th. Until that time, I have been Scott Morris, and my compadre has been Freezeman. <laughs> that I have, and no mistake. Take care of yourselves and each other. We will see you anon. Farewell. <laughs> Bye.